Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. So before the episode begins, I would just like to say a huge thank you to CastBox for helping me make the CastBox original, Be Scared, which is produced along with Studio 71. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, and you can find all of your favorite podcasts there. Personally, I think CastBox is the best podcasting platform out there, and I hope you guys check it out because I think you'll be surprised at just how much variety they have and how user-friendly their app is. Anyway, guys, thanks for listening, and without further ado, let's begin. I found my old copy of my favourite childhood movie, and something's seriously wrong with it, by Dopabine, Part 5. Every hour, the pain gets worse, except when I'm with Jessie. Proximity isn't a cure, but it arrests it, like a bell jar dropped over a spider to keep it in place. So, even though I felt awful, I went to work today. Carolyn was under the weather and just wanted to watch a movie. We aren't allowed to override our clients' wishes when it comes to daily activities, and nor should we, so with dread uncoiling in my stomach, I settled in to watch what she termed a, a surprise movie. To my immense relief, it was just The Fox and the Hound. The illustrated watercolour style made me feel a little sick, but the film played normally. I got up to stretch after a little while, since sitting for too long makes the pain worse. Mark was enthusiastically soliquizing about 1964 Ford Galaxy convertibles. His happiness made me smile, and Jesse's earnest participation made my heart melt. I stretched again, grimacing as muscles strained against the wounds and ambled back to Carolyn. She looked perfectly happy. The screen blared a lush, painted scene of an evening forest. At first, I thought it was the part where Todd and Copper meet. Then, in the movie, a baby started to cry. Dense sunset-stained woods framed a weeping bundle. Among the black trees, a tall shape flickered, narrow and misshapen, with an unnaturally long face and wide, blank, perfectly round eyes. A dim, unfeeling smile touched its face. Once the sunset glimmered into soft twilight, the man dropped to all four. His limbs were too slender and noticeably longer than they should have been. After glancing to and fro, 
he approached the swaddled baby. Without the shadows to veil him, catastrophic injuries became evident. Tangled clusters of scar tissue wormed over his face. Weeping patches of infection flexed painfully every time he moved. He peered down at the infant with those big blank eyes. That smile rippled, curling around to his ears and his jaw unhinged like a snake's. He pushed forward, lower lip gathered dirt and twigs as it scraped the ground. The baby squirmed, dislodging a piece of swaddling. Wispy dark curls covered its forehead, bruises coated its skin and the eyes were hideously swollen. The blankness in the man's face flickered, brows knit and those perfect round eyes crinkled into something akin to pain. He threw his head back, making a, a peculiar gulping motion and rearranged his face into its more human facade. Then he scooped the child up and darted into the woods. I looked at Carolyn and she smiled exclaiming, look it's Vixie, she's my favourite I said. Mine too, she said. I smiled and then returned my attention to the TV. The infant lay on the floor of a dilapidated cottage beside a, a merrily crackling fire. A blackened spit stood over the flames. Vines snaked along the walls and a pile of bones lay in a corner. The baby snuffled and laboured for breath, shivering. A door creaked open. A round-eyed man entered dragging a corpse behind him. Perfect beads of sweat streamed down his face. Tiny pupils quivered in those unsettlingly blank eyes. He threw the body in the corner and collapsed beside it, narrow chest heaving wildly. Then he sat one hand on the corpse's shoulder, placed the other around the bicep and tore the arm away. The ragged hole spurted blood as the thin man speared the arm onto the fire spit. Soon, it was cooked. Hairy flesh roasted to a perfect crackle. The man prodded it, causing juices to drip into the fire with a series of satisfying pops. He removed the arm and ate, occasionally regurgitating soft masses of meat. Firelight flickered across his face, making his white eyes shine and dance. Finally, he pulled the baby into his lap and put small fingerfuls of chewed meat into her mouth. Through you, he rasped, I will be strong and young forever, even here. He touched her face. For the second time, those strange, awful eyes glimmered with emotion. My youth bringer, my Juliana. The scene faded into a lushy, illustrated summer forest. A young, heavily pregnant girl with thick black hair tumbled down a slope, laughing as a puppy clumsily bound after her. She ran to a lake and knelt beside a cluster of wooden traps. Trout swarmed frantically within. She picked one and carried it back up the hill to the little cottage. Her entire aspect darkened when she entered, dimming into resentful blankness. The round-eyed man wheezed in a corner, looking significantly worse for wear. Decay ate his scar tissue, turning everything into soft shades of green and brown. Bone glinted through unhealed rifts in his skin, and the stringy remains of his rotted cheeks barely concealed the teeth within. The girl prepared the fish and tried to feed him. Not enough, he snarled. I told you. He hid her hand, sending the spoon whirling through the air. You're too old, 
she answered quietly. Nothing will save you. Not men or women. Not even children. He sneered, face contorting into an inhuman rictus. That face faded into Juliana's, red, sweaty, twisted in pain. Nearby, a baby squalled. She threw her head back and wailed. The firelight blazed, starkly illuminating the bloody blanket surrounding her. Then she collapsed, gasping as a second baby began to cry. She pulled both infants close and blacked out. After a moment of darkness, the screen blazed to life. Fire crackled, babies whimpered, and the wide-eyed man shuffled forward, pulling one of the infants into his lap. A girl, he said softly. Juliana smiled dimly, expression quickly converting to horror as the baby uttered an ear-shattering shriek. She screamed as the thin man sank his teeth into the child, taking an enormous bite. Red sinews stretched and snapped, and the child fell abruptly silent. He chewed heartily, swallowed and ate more. The decay in his skin faded noticeably, and his flat yellow eyes acquired a lively shine. When he finished, he held the other baby. Juliana struggled to her feet, but he shoved her with such force that she flew into the opposite wall. He cradled the child in his arms, smiling and then regurgitating into the infant's mouth. My boy, the man cooed. My lovely boy. The boy grew quickly. The thin man tortured him, baiting him into torturing animals, instructing him into art and murder and abduction, overseeing forays into cannibalism, all within the dreamy confines of that animated world. One day, as the boy lay on a shoulder in the forest, Juliana hobbled to him. She looked hollow and sick, much older than the thin man. Her son sat up when he saw her, clearly wary. She held her hands up in a peaceful gesture. I mean no harm. He watched her suspiciously. Your grandfather, she said. Father, he corrected. Both. She conceded. He isn't a good man. He makes you do all his work, claims all the fruits of your labor, and leaves you with nothing. The boy relaxed somewhat. Yeah, I know this. He's weak. With some difficulty, Juliana hefted herself up on the rock. You could kill him. Hazy sunlight shafted through the trees, dappling the rock and gilding the boy's black hair with pure white gold. Is this a trick? Are you going to tell him? I never tell him anything, Juliana assured him with a slight smile. You know this. The boy killed the man that night, rendering his body into a dozen pieces with glee. He cut the decayed flesh away and cooked the rest, consuming it heartily as Juliana watched with a mixture of despair and satisfaction. When she went to tuck him into bed, he shoved her away. His dark eyes had a strange, flat aspect. She watched in horror as they lighted to unmistakable pale yellow. Put into bed, he drawled contemptuously. But my own daughter? I think not. Sleep and forget you're a ruin. She wept and said, how can this be? I made him into me. I'll make all of my children into me until the end of time. Thank you. 
Juliana. He took her hand into his and kissed it with an absurd flourish. Not only youth giver, but life bringer. Juliana wrenched away and collapsed as Koenig pranced out of the cottage in the body of her son. This cycle repeated endlessly. Many grandsons were tormented to do such things, but cooperated out of fear. Some relished the atrocities, partaking more eagerly than Koenig himself. Others were feeble or too frozen by dread and horror to do anything but obey. All met the same fate though, finally goaded one way or another into killing their grandfather and overtaken by his spirit after. In their wake were dozens of mothers, sisters, brothers and fathers, all watching helplessly as the boys transformed into monsters. The first mother, Juliana, died of sorrow shortly after Koenig stole their son's body. Yet, she remained. Her small form, bony and malnourished in death as in life, haunted the boys, plaguing them with hideous visions of their victims' suffering. Sometimes, it had the intended effect, and the boys would tearfully refuse to partake in torture until Koenig beat them into submission. Other times, it had the opposite effect. Some boys woke from these dreams flushed and revitalized, eager to fulfill Koenig's orders. Others joined Juliana, and over time, her phantom's figure expanded into a long-limbed, multi-jointed horror. They grew in strength and power when the boys killed other human monsters. Some felt that it absolved them of their own horrors. Others considered it yet another in a, a long line of pleasures. But all killed. And by killing, they gave Juliana minute infusions of strength. The tape continued through Jesse's abandonment. His mother gave him the slip of paper. After she left, he unfolded the paper, revealing a little painting of him and his mother. Along the side, she'd written, For Jesse, love mummy. Shortly after, a tall man with black hair and yellow eyes came to the door. Jesse shyly peered at him from behind his foster mother's knees. I am Anna's father, the man said. Jesse's grandfather. She sent me to fetch him. There was enough resemblance between the man and Anna that the woman didn't question it. She relinquished Jesse with kisses and cookies, waving as he set off toward his new life with his grandfather. The scene cut. To my surprise, the familiar credits of the fox and the hound rolled past. Carolyn's lip was trembling, but she clapped. I got up and ran to the backyard and I threw up and sank to my knees, wishing that I'd never come here. The glass door slid open and soft footsteps approached. A moment later, Jesse's arms went around my shoulders. Did, did you see it? I whispered. He hesitated. Well, I saw you seeing it. Kind of like a daydream. Panic surged and I tried to stand up, narrowly sidestepping my vomit. Carolyn, do you think she... No, he interrupted. No, other people only see what involves them. Carolyn was probably able to see that tape clearly because you care about her a lot. Mark had a daydream too, remember? They won't see other dreams. You did? Well, yeah, but it was basically about me. He looked down shyly. Something's different anyway because... We dream together. 
he looked up at the tree, scanning, and I thought for his painted monster. How are you feeling? There was no point in lying. Yeah, it, uh, it hurts. A lot less than when I'm alone, though. That's good. We stood silently, captivated by the hypnotic shimmer of wet leaves in the wind. I want to take you somewhere after work, Jesse finally said. He anxiously pushed his hair back from his temples. To the old house. The thought of going on a drive with that pulsating, rotten ache in my gut was daunting, but the idea of returning to the sight of so much horror was worse. Unbidden, the thought of Jesse's dream filled my mind. The one where he screamed and wept under a yellow sky as dismembered bodies begged and begilled him. I shivered. We don't have to, he said immediately. No, I want to, I lied. The workday passed in a, a haze of anxiety, boredom and pain. Carolyn fell asleep before the end of my shift, which isn't unusual. Mark was disappointed to see Jesse leaving early again and gave me a mildly venomous look when he left. Jesse drove me out into the country, among green hills covered in stunning old grown trees. Vivid streaks of wildflowers occasionally brightened the soothing landscape. I felt myself drifting off and immediately bit down on my cheek to wake up. We drove until sunset. To my surprise, the pain largely subsided, and for the first time in several days, I felt healthy. The heavy clouds had dissolved, reduced to thin streamers that blazed with the setting sun. Jesse turned onto a narrow lane lined thickly with trees and flowers. It descended sharply into a tiny valley ringed with low hills. There, in the center was the glorious little lake, serene and still, reflecting the brilliant sunset sky like a mirror. Jesse parked and helped me out of the car, and it was breathtaking. I don't think I've ever seen a more beautiful place, or ever will again. Balmy wind drifted, fluttering my hair and his, and he took my hand and guided me down to the shore. You've seen this place, haven't you? I nodded good. We knelt at the water's edge, peering down at our reflections. Frown lines cut his forehead and etches themselves around his mouth. He looked at me. Don't be scared. With you? Never. He smiled faintly and then dipped his hand into the water. Brilliantly bright ripples took off, spreading languorously across the mirror-like water. He twined his other hand into mine and submerged them both. The lake was blissfully gentle and cool against my skin. I closed my eyes and when I opened them again, a face that wasn't mine stared up from the water. Stripped of flesh with a single eye and a cloud of golden hair. The boy in the first painted dream that I'd had of Jesse. The one that Jesse sat with for an entire night, just so that he wouldn't be alone. Another face drifted up from the depths, and another, and another, and a dozen, a hundred, too many, far too many, stretching the lake into a fiery ocean. These, these are the good ones, Jesse said, quietly. Others try to please him, hoping that he'll bring them back. That's what you see in the dream with the room full of bodies. Why do you have those dreams? I asked before I could stop myself. 
he looked across the lake toward a broken little cottage nestled against a hill. You need to know that tears glimmered brightly along his lash line, so much like a painted dream that my heart seized. I could bring them all back if, if I hurt other people, but it's more than that. He blinked rapidly. Sometimes it's hard to keep saying no, okay? A bird dived at the water, creating a bright gold splash. I don't, I don't want any of it. I never have, but I look at what happened to me, what I'll never have, and what I couldn't stop, and none of it means anything. Just pointless suffering. But I could make it have a point. Any point. Revenge, immortality, restoring his victims. I know I can't. I know I'd just become him, but sometimes I just want to give in anyway. I thought of the nightmare, those horrific corpses coaxing and pleading with him. That's what it meant, literally and figuratively. Give in. The faces in the lake disappeared as Jesse crumbled. I pulled him close and he started to cry. What if she's right? I knew he meant Juliana. What if I'm already like him? In that moment, I hated the Phantom more than I hated anything except Mark and Carolyn's family. I hated her more than Koenig. At least his monstrosity was obvious. Hers was insidious, masquerading as benevolent while torturing her children. Well, of course you feel that way sometimes. It's just what you said. You suffered all your life, and for what? I understand. I blink tears away. You're not anything like him though, okay? We held each other as sunset faded to twilight on into night. The darkness made me wonder about the behemoth in the forest, the creature of the shadows that Koenig was so desperate to please. I needed to know, but not today. Not today. Finally, I helped Jesse stand and walked into the car. He sat silently and then gestured to the lake. You know... It's hard to leave them there. Almost impossible as it is. I know. No, you don't. He covered his face briefly and then looked at me. He looked so exhausted that I wanted to cry. I have to get rid of him before something happens to you. If I don't, I will give in. And then it all really will be for nothing. I'm not in pain right now, I said truthfully. It doesn't matter. Alleviating the symptoms without curing the disease is pointless. Okay, but maybe we have more time than you think? Time for what? To figure it out. To end this without... There are two ways to break what he's done. I can die or I can do something even more terrible than what he did to his daughter. I can't even imagine what that would be. Can you? Images of Juliana and her twins flashed across my mind's eye. No, no I can't. We drove back in silence, stopping to feed Koenig before going home. He's sleeping now and I can't. I think he's wrong though. There has to be a way to end this and save him. I don't know what it is, but if I go downstairs now, 
I'll see a tape in front of my TV, and it better show me something worthwhile. G'day mates. So, I just wanted to take a quick break before the second half of the story to thank all of you guys for listening to Be Scared. If you're a new listener, welcome to The Hive. And if you're a long-time fan, thanks for checking out the podcast. If you could please take a moment to do me a favour to rate and review the show, that would be a huge help. And if you have any stories that you would like to submit for future episodes, you can send them to my email at bish.buster at gmail.com. That's b-i-s-h dot b-u-s-t-a at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and without further ado... Here's the rest of the story. After Jesse fell asleep Tuesday night, I went downstairs. As I expected, I saw a tape. I put it in the player and settled in as the title danced over the screen. The boy who will do anything for anyone except his family. The title faded, showing a large dark basement. A black-haired boy of about ten descended. He carried a platter of food and an electric lantern that engulfed him in a soft orb of light. Half a dozen cells lined the walls. Five were empty and the last held a, a badly disfigured child. Scars and open wounds littered his body and he had only one arm. In place of eyes and nose were open, separating holes. Jesse entered the cell. The child whimpered until Jesse touched his hand. The lantern revealed the absence of several fingers. Jesse softened pieces of bread into water before placing them in the child's mouth. The reason for his extra care became clear. The disfigured boy had bloody, bloated runes instead of teeth. He will hurt you for this, said a soft, familiar voice. Jesse's shoulders tensed as the planted phantom smoked into existence just beyond the lantern's reach. Yeah, I know. The phantom watched as Jesse put another bite of bread into the boy's mouth. What are you planning? To not let him die hungry. To my shock, the boy didn't react. The painted monster noticed as well. Does he not hear? Jesse shook his head. He stabbed his ears. A hard bit of crust must have cut his mouth because a thin dribble of blood began to trail from the corner of his mouth. His movements had become slow and lazy, even sluggish. This kindness will make your betrayal that much more painful, the phantom intoned. When you give him to Karakor... Jesse's eyes flashed angrily, slightly yellow with the lantern light. I'm not going to do that. Then your grandfather will. No. A tear glimmered in the corner of his eye and he rubbed it away hastily. He won't. The painted phantom waited. But for the brilliant colours skating across its skin, it could have been just another shadow. The disfigured boy sat, motionless. Blood continued to dribble down his mouth, but nothing else moved. Not even his chest. Not even to breathe. Jesse's face twisted. He shook the child gently and then leaned down and held an ear to his mouth. After a long moment, he shifted and started to cry. Oh my boy. The phantom breathed. It lurched over, perhaps to hold him, but he shoved it away. 
The golden lantern light and soft shadows faded to a forest bathed in glorious multi-hued twilight. Jesse, older now, a young teenager, pulled a makeshift canvas sleigh through a familiar forest. Koenig's limp body lay upon it and he already looked terribly with it. Only his eyes possessed a trace of life. Jesse dragged him through the trees as fireflies fitted and insects sang in the long grass. When he reached the pit, he unceremoniously rolled Koenig aside and then jumped after him. Koenig chuckled cruelly. Jesse pretended not to hear though. Overhead, the soft colors of the sky darkened to night. Out among the trees, a familiar darkness gathered and moved. It remained amorphous, almost languid, a swirling bed of impenetrable shadows gliding toward the pit. It halted at the edge, but took no other form. Not the giant column, the towering monster, or the horned behemoth. Just a churning cloud of black, hovering curiously at the rim. Jesse carefully stood up and dragged Earl to that blanket of darkness. But then, the shadow receded, gliding backward like a dark tide. No! Jesse leapt to his feet and scrambled out of the pit. He tried to chase it, but the moment the shadow touched the trees, it broke apart, dissipating like smoke. Jesse commenced a manic, desperate tantrum screaming incoherently and racing through the woods as his voice echoed over the illustrated landscape. Its name is Karakor. That old Jesse's voice shocked me. I whirled around, shocked yet relieved as his fully grown animated form strode from the shadows. He drew up beside me, watching his younger self rage at the darkness. He swallowed hard. Like my grandfather, he consumes people in their pain, but... He's much stronger, and he rewards people who feed him. With what? Jesse shrugged. Even in the dream, with its soft warmth and flattering color palette, he looked exhausted. It depends on what you offer. I barely heard, though. My attention was focused on his child self panicking and raging in the face of yet another failure. Jesse gently touched my shoulder. Wake up. After several minutes, I did. Young Jesse's desperate shrieking followed me to the surface, echoing in my head. I went back upstairs to talk to him, and this is what he said. A Karakor is Koenig's god. Like many other ancient things, he's largely forgotten. Koenig called it a deity. Jesse called it a, a monster, ravenous and insatiable. It feeds only on pain and flesh. At one point... In the distant past, it was restrained. Chains of ritual and human trickery stopped it from ravaging freely. The only way it can eat is if a supplicant feeds it a worthy offering. In the most basic terms, this means human sacrifice. Koenig thought his hideously tortured offerings would be enough to earn whatever gift he wanted. But they were not. This is because... Karakor's greatest gift requires more than meat and suffering. They require willful corruption, the intentional surrender of your fundamental goodness. That's why Koenig could never get what he wanted. He didn't have enough of a soul to interest Karakor, neither did his grandsons. Koenig tried to earn the attention of his god for centuries and never once found success. Until... 
Jesse came along. Only then did Koenig's nightmarish rituals and unimaginable infliction of pain attract the shadow. Well, how do you summon it? I asked, unwilling to say Karakor's name. The thought of the syllables, of the letters themselves, were enough to make me shudder. Well, you go to the pit with an intentional offering, sometime between sunset and nightfall, and then you wait while he decides whether or not to come. I twisted the blankets anxiously, unwilling to look at him. What's wrong? He asked, tiredly. I thought of the static phantom's words, everything it had said about Koenig's roots in Jesse's heart. But that wasn't fair, and I knew it. Why did you kill that boy? Couldn't he have been brought back? That little girl and the dog and... Because it doesn't work that way. Karakor can resurrect people. If you give him an offering he likes. That's what happened with the girl. Karakor got all her pain, half her body and a lot of my skin, and he got his flesh and suffering. Somehow, all of these things together brought her back as the dog. She's trapped still, though. Not as badly as the others, but trapped. Pieces of the puzzle began to fall into place. You mean the people in the lake? He hesitated, clearly searching for the right word. My grandfather, he can breathe life back into the people he kills. That's what he used to do to some of them. Torture them to death, resurrect them, and do it all over again. He thinks it fills them with several lifetimes of pain and makes them more appealing to Karakor. That's what he was doing. Torturing them, killing them, and banking their... I guess their spirits for a final enormous sacrifice to make Karakor do what he wanted. But you stopped him. Sure but there's no way to free them without sacrificing other people. They're trapped. He settled back slowly, looking more tired than I'd ever seen him. Unless he dies. I felt a lump in my throat. Profound sadness settled over me. Could Karakor bring you back? I expected him to panic, beg or even yell, but all he said was, who would you give in my place, though? There was no answer to that question. I felt shaky and dim, empty yet overwhelmed. Like I wasn't anything more than the sum of my sorrow. The boy was too good to do anything. Too good to take anything. Too good to have anything. The best person that I'd ever known, reduced to another sacrifice on his family's hideous altar. And on mine. What are you going to do? I asked. I think you already know. Tears stung my eyes. When? I don't know. I'd have done it today if you hadn't have come back to work with me. And I'm glad I didn't. I had a good day with you, but you're getting worse. Not because of the physical injury, but because of him. And you're getting sicker and... I know you don't want to hear it, but it's almost time. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Be Scared Podcast. And please, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode too. Also, it would be much appreciated if you could share this new podcast with your friends and family and on social media too. Thanks again for listening guys, and I'll see you mates in the next one.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.